Welcome to the City of Refuge Church Podcast. We are so excited that you have joined us. We are a church that is called, connected, and commissioned. We want to call all people to repent and believe in our Savior's loving grace. We want to connect our neighborhood to the unity found in the greater family of Christ. We want to commission others to live as kingdom citizens before the world and heaven. And we hope that this podcast gives you a glimpse of what God is doing in us and in the Eau Claire community. Thank you so much for tuning in. Well, good morning again. If I've had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Justin Gates and I serve on staff here at City Refuge and I'm so excited to be with you all on this third Advent Sunday as we, as Jayla said earlier, celebrate the joy of Christ here with us this morning. If this is your first time here, we're continuing our series, our Advent series of Promised Light as we look through different passages of the book of Isaiah and see how it reveals Christ and his coming. And this portion of Isaiah that I read earlier is called the Song of the Suffering Servant. And it's the last of the songs of the servant, or the four songs of the servant that was written by our beloved prophet. And each of these songs reveal a certain thing about God's coming Messiah. And this morning we'll see how this promised Messiah, the one, uh, the suffering servant, as this is so often called, will come to deliver Israel out of her troubles and allow them to prosper, and how that applies to us even this time this morning. Now, the servant song is composed of five stanzas, each of three verses uh, in each stanza. The first stanza serves as an introduction to the entire song, and it tells us exactly what's going to happen to God's chosen servant. Isaiah's prophecy begins on a high note saying that God's servant will be successful, that he'll be lifted up and highly exalted. But things immediately take a turn as the next verse says that the servant will experience disfigurement. A disfigurement so intense that he'll no longer bear the appearance of a human being. And it seems as if the servant's victory could only come through the form of suffering. But how could that be? In what world does it make sense for a person to become victorious through intense pain or intense suffering or intense affliction? And Isaiah's audience would have asked these same questions. They thought that God would rescue Israel and bring about comfort and salvation to his people through a mighty king who would be victorious in warfare. Or maybe if it wasn't a king, it would be a great priest who would intercede for Israel and teach them all the things that they needed to know to be righteous and to be saved. So this text doesn't make any sense to them when they look at it through that lens. But instead of these things, it seems like someone has to come not in great power, but in great humility. And so someone coming with great strength and might and brilliance, Isaiah says that God's chosen servant will be someone that comes in weakness and humiliation. He tells us that the, the success of God's servant won't be like that of One Punch Man, the famous anime series where he has the strength to take out any opponent through one punch, but rather he'll come in like Mufasa who was killed after being trampled upon and disfigured after coming into a stampede. And it's through this humiliation, this weakness, and this suffering that God's chosen servant will raise in victory and be able to sprinkle the nations clean, as it says in verse 12, to purify them, to make them holy. And it's through this weakness, this suffering, this humiliation that God's people will be able to rejoice and to prosper. But how can the suffering produce joy? If God is really good, why is it he's chosen to bring about redemption and salvation into this world through pain and affliction? 
More importantly, if this is how God brings about this redemption and salvation into this world, how is it that he gives us comfort in our times of intense suffering and affliction? And moreover, how is it that God brings about joy through suffering? How is it that we can reorient ourselves in our suffering so that we can seek him and seek his joy even when it seems impossible? And as we dive into our text this morning, I hope to answer these questions by moving through four distinct movements of this song of the suffering servant. And with each of these movements, we'll uncover a particular aspect of God's suffering servant that allows us to suffer and endure the present sufferings that we face in this world today and move us to a place of true joy. But more importantly, I hope to answer this question or these great questions to the problems that are here by showing how Isaiah's prophecy points directly to Jesus Christ himself who serves as our greatest hope and joy, despite all that we may face in this world. So will you pray with me that God will open our hearts and minds this morning to these truths. Heavenly Father, you call us to humbly bow our knees before you, whom every family on heaven and earth derive its name. So Father, we come to you now, asking that as we read and hear your word, that you will strengthen us with power through your Holy Spirit in our innermost being, so that Christ may dwell richly in our hearts. And Father, as we continue to worship you, help us to know more of you and be rooted and grounded in your love, which surpasses all understanding. And Lord, as we know more and more of the infinite nature of your love, may we be filled with the fullness of you so that we will know how you use suffering to produce joy and that you, Jesus, are indeed the promised light of the world that brings salvation and redemption to all. So Lord, use this time for your glory and your purposes. May I speak of you so that you will be exalted and glorified. Lord, in my weakness, would you make me strong? In the ways that I'm clear, would, or where, the ways that I'm unclear, will you make me clear? In the ways that I need to be dependent upon you, Lord, will you sustain me so that only you are exalted, only you are heard, and not of my own? So we give you this time. We ask that you would move here today, that we would not leave without having an encounter with you, Lord, and that you will draw us nearer to you and into your presence through our time together this morning. We ask all these things in Christ's mighty name. Amen. Well, the title of the servant, or the title of the sermon is The Suffering Savior. The Suffering Savior. Well, we'll begin by looking about how the servant came about in humility this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 with me. In chapter 53, Isaiah begins by asking the questions, Who has believed what we have heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Here we see how Isaiah shifts from talking about God's servant in the introduction in chapter 52 to providing a first-hand account of what's actually happening in Israel at this point in time. From his perspective, all he could report was a lack of belief that resulted from the message that he and others had been faithfully proclaiming for many, many generations and how people are not responding to it. And he's saying that the arm of the Lord, God's victorious power, will be revealed through a suffering servant. But there was no one who was responding to this, no one who wanted to believe in this. But why? Moving on down to verses 2 and 3, that unbelief probably stemmed from the unimpressive nature of God's servant. Isaiah tells us that the servant was like a young plant, a root springing out of dry ground, meaning that he was a tender plant, he was a tender plant desperately trying to survive in a place that was unfertile, in a place that was so dry and so barren and so rocky that it couldn't produce uh, a plant, let alone delicious fruit. 
And the servant wasn't just a pork plant trying to survive. He was also unimpressive in form. He didn't even have an appearance that was desirable. His appearance made him out to be the most unattractive, the most insignificant, the lowliest of all human beings. That God's chosen servant, the promised light, that one that was supposed to save and redeem Israel, didn't have an appearance like Ryan Gosling, but rather had an appearance like Shrek the Ogre. In a culture where hope is so often found in the tallest or the most attractive individual, the ugly appearance of the servant would, made it, people, would make people want to give up hope because it's not the person they expected to be the one that redeemed Israel. It would not be the person who had the most strength or the most power or the most glory. Does this sound familiar? It's almost as if we put our hope in the people or the politicians who speak the best or have the fanciest of clothing or the ones who are most attractive. And what's true of today as well as true of then in Isaiah's time. And then in verse 3, we're told that the servant was despised and rejected by man. He was well acquainted with suffering and sickness. And he wasn't someone who just understood physical pain and suffering, but he was, under, he was someone that understood physical or social rejection and suffering. He was an individual who was not even considered worthy of attention. In the Hebrew, the phrase, therefore, he was like someone people turned away from, indicates that people didn't even want to bat an eye at him. He was so unworthy. He was so unattractive. People did not even want to look at him. That was a suffering servant. That was a social rejection that he experienced. That was a shame that he experienced. And Isaiah closes the stanza by saying that we didn't value him. This is important because it shows us two key things. One is that the people in Isaiah's day, and even us now, didn't give any value or worth to the servant. We treated him as the lowliest of the low. He was treated as the lowliest of low back in Israel's time. And two, the suffering servant is someone who can relate to people. The servant can relate to us as he fully understands our pain and our suffering. The servant knows our battles with sickness and disease and as well as the ways that we've been physically injured. He knows those things because he's experienced those things. And it isn't just the physical suffering that the servant understands. He understands the ways that we feel, we feel shame, this intense, uncomfortable feeling of humiliation and rejection when no one wants to be around us. He knows that. He knows what it's like to be an outcast and to live on the fringes of society. Family, as you think about your own story, can you relate to the servant? Is there anything that you've experienced in the same ways that the servant has experienced? Have you ever felt like the small root trying to come out of the dry and barren ground? It seems like it's so hard to try to survive, let alone thrive. Have you ever felt so rejected and despised that by people that you aren't even feel like you're worthy of their attention? Or is there some form of trauma in your life where you feel like, I just don't know how to live with this, but I still have the effects of this trauma, both physically and emotionally, that just don't go away? And it's this kind of suffering that Jesus, God's chosen servant, understands fully. He was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And because he was God in the flesh, because he walked on this world, he could feel pain and experience trauma and suffering just like us. Jesus, who was so holy, so divine, so pure, had left his place of glory so that he'd come to earth and taste our sadness as the old hymn goes. 
And during Jesus' time on earth, he fasted in the wilderness for 40 days. And as he was in the wilderness, he was tempted in every, every way, yet without sin. And then during the days leading up to the cross, he faced intense physical pain and suffering and affliction as he was beaten and then hung on a tree to undergo the most intense form of execution that any man has ever experienced. And during his last moments, Jesus fully experienced the most intense shame and social rejection that any man has ever faced as he was rejected, spat on, and mocked, and stripped naked. All of this shows how Jesus is not like any other supposed God in this universe. There is no other personal being who has all absolute power and authority, who even associates himself with people who suffer, let alone take upon the fullness of suffering himself. Every other God puts great distance between themselves and man. Every other God puts distance between themselves and suffering. Whereas Jesus laid aside all his glory and all his splendor and all his holiness to take upon the most humblest of forms so that he could face suffering. But Jesus didn't just bear suffering. He also dwells with those who suffer. Because he is gentle and lowly in heart, meaning that he is so tender and that he spends time with those who have been rejected by society, by those who have been thrusted down by life's circumstances. He spends time with them because he wants to be present with them and he wants to comfort them as he walks them through the valley of the shadow of death. To bring them to the other side, to places where there's green pastures and still waters, where there's places where people can thrive. Jesus walks people through that place to be with them. He's not a God who will ever abandon his people. He's not a God who will ever forsake his people. He's a God who walks with them in their suffering. He's a God who knows their suffering. And we know this because Paul writes about it in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Friends, this, what Paul is saying here is that God knows how to precisely comfort us in every affliction that we may face. And as we share in the sufferings of Christ, we also will surely share in his comfort. And as we share in Christ's comfort, we also know how to share the same comfort, the ones that we receive from God to those who are also suffering. God has divinely chosen his people to bring about his comfort and his grace to this world. And what a privilege that is to know that just the way that God has personally touched our own hearts, we can bring that same comfort to this world. That we can be his lights to the darkness in this world to bring about his comfort and his peace. And God does this through the Holy Spirit, his helper, the advocate, the one who walks alongside us to help us in our time of need. He gives us his comfort through his spirit. And his spirit is with us so that his spirit can work through us to give his comfort to others. And this is why Isaiah goes through so much detail to talk about the type of suffering that the servant faces. Because he uses it as a means of way of showing God's power, the arm of the Lord is shown through weakness, is shown through that so he can comfort his people. Around this time, three years ago, I found myself in a season of great confusion and suffering. Over a Thanksgiving meal, several of my family members began to both physically fight with one another and verbally fight with one another. And it's in that moment that I saw so much of the fracturing of my own family, that there was so much sin and hatred that came through an intense meal. And I still remember as I'm weeping on my bed, like, Lord, where are you? 
why are you letting this happen? And it's in that moment I still remember the Lord speaking to me, saying, hey, I'm right here with you. Then remember how I was in your life previously? Remember where I showed myself in those moments? I'm still here now showing myself to you, and I'll continue to walk with you through those moments of suffering. That is our God. He's the God who meets us in our very personal ways to bring about his covering so that we can walk through whatever we face. Our Savior has been attuned to suffering, and he, he is so attuned that he knows how to comfort us in our own suffering, friends. It's this, comfort, it's this comfort that we receive from God that we can use to comfort others. He, Jesus shows up in our most intense moments of affliction. He kneels down to our level and weeps with us and comforts us. And that's why in Psalm 46, it tells us that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in our times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mounds may be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam all around us, though its mountains tremble at its swelling, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Friends, in our times of trouble, when the whole world is in chaos, when it seems as if everything is falling apart, remember that God is your refuge and your strength. And he will always be your present help in your time of trouble. He is with you and he will serve as your mighty fortress because he will never be moved. He will never be shaken. He is the one you can find abiding refuge in at all points of your life in every form of suffering that you may face. So if you're here this morning and you find yourself suffering or from the loss of a friend, or you find yourself suffering from a severe battle of sickness, or if you find yourself suffering from the greatest form of anxiety that you've ever experienced, come lay yourself, come lay those things before Jesus' feet, knowing that he is the God of all comfort who comforts you in every affliction, that he walks with you to help you go through this suffering. He's gentle and lowly in heart, and he will surely give you rest. But maybe you're here this morning and you are going through a period of suffering or affliction. Remember what I'm saying, because that will come at some point in your life. Trust me, it will. But maybe you can ask yourself what it looks like for you to follow the way of Jesus, to enter into the darkness so that you can bring his comfort to other people. As you spend time with your family or someone who is within your spheres of influence this holiday season, how can you come alongside them in their suffering, to be present with them, to weep with them, and even share the promises of God that he's given us to give us his comfort? And remember, God has sovereignly placed you where you are currently, that he's given you a very particular corner of the vineyard to be a part of and to steward, that you don't have to go to the far reaches of this world to bring about comfort to God's people, to those who've never heard about God, that you can do it in your own neighborhood, that you can do it in your own families, that you can do it in the places that God's given you to be a part of, to be present in. And he equips you in those moments so that he can comfort his people, that he can share his promised light to the nations, through where he has sovereignly placed you. We'll continue on down to verses 4 through 7. We see the second movement of the suffering servant, and that's how he's brought healing through suffering. Isaiah begins his stanza by showing us that the servant didn't just suffer, but he suffered on the behalf of others, as he himself bore sicknesses and carried our pain. And even though he took upon the affliction of others, Isaiah tells us that we collectively regarded him as stricken, and smitten by God, meaning that we believe the servant deserved this harsh treatment, this harsh punishment that he was receiving. 
And he goes on to give a more precision to the suffering that was being inflicted on by the servant in verse 5 by saying that our transgressions, though our very offenses against God, were the things that caused him to be pierced. And it's from our iniquities that caused him to be crushed. In other words, the servant was inflicted with so much pain, with so much hatred, all because of our own doing. The ways that I have slandered people, that's what caused the servant to be crushed. That's what caused the servant to be pierced. And the ways that I have not even wanted to follow the Lord, that's why he was pierced. And then in verse 6, Isaiah tells us that we've all been wandering away like sheep. I don't know if you know much about sheep, but they often find themselves wandering aimlessly throughout the pasture, trying to find more and more places to feed their appetites again, more grass that's green and flourishing. And because sheep are so focused on finding food that their heads are often so focused on just looking at the grass, they wander miles away from their own pasture that they forget to look up to see where they're actually going. And as they wander so far away, they put themselves in danger by being vulnerable to attack from wolves or being so far away from the place that they're supposed to be. Family, how much are we like sheep? How often do we chase our own desires and our own appetites instead of pursuing the things that God wants for us? This is what sin does. This is the transgressions and the iniquities that Isaiah is talking about. It causes us to turn away from God, and none of us are exempt from this. We've all sinned, and it's our very sin that was laid on the servant leading to his suffering. But the stanza is not without hope. To go back to verse 5, it says it's from the wounds that are afflicted upon the servant that we are able to be healed. It's from the chastisement of the servant that we now have peace. Isaiah here isn't referencing the healing from physical ailments. Instead, he is referring to a greater, more cosmic healing that would be needed in order to combat sin. The punishment and pain that was afflicted upon the servant was meant for us, that God being fully just had to do away with sin, and the only way he had to do that was to put someone to death. For the wages of sin is death. And he can't let let sin go unpunished. So in order for the servant to bring about healing, he had to pay the high price, and that high price was ultimately death. And he had to do that to satisfy the wrath that was required to be brought up against sin. But the servant couldn't just bring healing to sin through suffering. The servant had to be innocent. Look at verses 7 through 9 with me. And it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Here we see that the servant was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, that he was silent, that he willingly chose himself to not defend himself or to attack the people that were oppressing him. Rather, he said, I'll be still. I'll be silent. And he didn't just suffer from this, but it says in verse 8 that he was cut off from the land of the living because of the rebellion of Israel. And continuing on with the idea that the servant would be despised and rejected in Verse 9, it says he was assigned a grave with the wicked. That even though he was innocent, even though he did not revile against those who were beating him and mocking him and making him suffer, he was still laid in the grave as though he was. But note how the stanza ends. Isaiah speaks again of the servant's innocence, that he had done no violence, that he had not, speak in, he had not spoken deceitfully. And the innocence of 
the innocence of the servant shows how God's wrath can only be satisfied if a perfect and pure offering is given up for sin. The old adage is true in that the sacrifice of a guilty person cannot absolve the guilty, but rather the innocent one is the one who can absolve the guilty. The innocent one is the one who can make a sacrifice for the guilty. And Peter in his first epistle in chapter 2 picks up, picks up on this exact test and explains it further and applies it to Christ. And he says, he being Jesus, did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sin, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now, how, but now return to the shepherd and overseer of your soul." So Peter explains Christ's innocence, not only at his death, but also through his whole life, that he committed no sin, that there was no deceit in his mouth, there was no insult or threatening from his mouth to the very ones that are crucifying him. And as he was being crucified, he bore himself our sins so that we would live for righteousness. But Jesus' death not only allows us to live for righteousness, his death allows us to be fully healed. And in a total reversal of what Isaiah said earlier in his text, it says that we've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls, that we were like the sheep who were lost, but now we're like the sheep who are back in the fold of God. That this Jesus, the suffering Savior, is the one who did the cosmic reversal so that we can be in God, so that the ways that we were, um, the ways that we experienced that pain, that suffering from sin, we are now healed so that we can be back with the Lord. Well, you might be asking, Justin, why is it that Jesus willingly died for us? Friend, if you're asking that question, it's because of love. In the third chapter of John's gospel, Jesus tells us that, For God so loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then later on in chapter 15, Jesus tells his disciples that no one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. What these verses show us is that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to save it and to give eternal life to those who believe in him, all from the core motivation of love. Moreover, Jesus had demonstrated the greatest form of love that anyone could ever show, and that was to endure the fullness of the wrath of God against sin, which was physical death, all for the sake of his friends. And family, love has endured the greatest form of suffering that humanity has ever witnessed. All so that we would never have to endure it. All so that we would never have to endure the fullness of God's wrath. And as we pierced Christ with our sin and crushed him with our iniquity and his crimson blood ran to the ground, Jesus' love prevailed so that his love could heal us from our sin and give us eternal peace with the Father. And that results in eternal life. The love that he displayed on the cross is a perfect example of 1 Corinthians 13, the hallmark text of what love is. Family, do you remember this love? Do you remember how Jesus was patient and kind? Do you remember how he was patient with Pontius Pilate and the Romans as they carried him off to death? Do you remember his kindness as he spoke to the thief that was crucified next to him and said that he will join him in paradise? Do you remember how Jesus was not envious or boastful as he bore insult after insult and blow after blow and inflicted no harm or foul word against those who beat him? Do you remember how Jesus did not insist on his own way, but rather said, Father, not my will be done but yours? 
Do you remember how Jesus bears or how he covers all things? Do you remember how Jesus believes the best in all things? Do you remember how Jesus hopes and endures all things? Do you remember how Jesus never ends? Family, during this time of Advent, do you remember this great love that Jesus has shown? Love has come down for Christmas. Love continues to dwell with us this Christmas, and Jesus, his love will dwell with us for all eternity. He's the ultimate expression of love, and he invites us to come to him so that we can receive his love and say once and for all that my sin has been healed by my suffering, yet loving Savior. So far we've seen how the servant came in humility. We saw how the servant suffered in innocence in order to bring healing. And finally, we'll see how the the servant's suffering will lead to victory. Look at verses 10 and 12 with me. And it says, Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him the guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. And after his anguish, he will see the light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. He will receive the mighty as a spoil, because he willingly submitted to death. He was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. The last stanza of the song of the suffering servant opens up with the statement that the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. Now, the statement doesn't mean that God delights in crushing people, especially his servant. Rather, God was pleased to do this thing because it brought about the greatest good for his people that the servant being the guilt offering would bring about redemption and salvation to those who are eagerly awaiting for such an event to take place. But this wasn't the only reason that the Lord was pleased to crush the servant. It is through the suffering that victory would arise. This is why Isaiah's account continues to say that the servant will see his seed and will prolong his days. And then picking up in verse 11, the servant will see the light and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the knowledge that comes through suffering, The servant will justify many as he carries their iniquities. What this prophecy details is that the servant will not remain in the grave next to the wicked. Rather, the servant will again be in the fullness of life. Additionally, the servant will see face to face all the individual that he has justified to those whom he's declared as righteous. And this is the final victory of the servant. And this serves as the foreshadow of Christ's victory. In Hebrews 12, we're told that we keep our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus, being the author and the finisher of our faith, willingly endured the pain, the shame, and ultimately the death that came from the cross. And he willingly endured all these things because he knew that a great victorious joy would be on the other side. Christ knew that there would be joy through suffering as he would despise the shame of the cross. Christ knew that there would be joy on the other side of death because death could not and would not have the final hold over him. And Christ knew that there would be joy on the other side of the cross because he would justify many and rewrite their story so that they would not end in suffering, but they would carry on into the newness of eternal life. And now that Christ is on the other side of death, Isaiah's prophecy has been fulfilled. And Christ is now exalted and glorified as he sits at the right hand of the Father, where he continues to make intercession on our behalf, on the behalf of us rebels. Family, this is why we can endure suffering. Even as we share in Christ's sufferings and even his death, we will also share in his resurrection. 
meaning that death will never have a hold on us, that the suffering we face here is not eternal. It has an ending. It will surely cease. And Jesus Christ himself will raise us in glorious victory. The great pastor scholar Jerry Wilson once said that this, this world is as bad as it gets here as the Christian. And that's because we know that there's an ultimate victory. The Christian knows what the future holds, and it only gets better from here. As a family, we can say with confidence that we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not abandoned. That we're struck, but not destroyed. For we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus. This is our hope. This is our joy. This is our future. No matter what suffering you may find yourself in right now, the suffering will never be your identity. If you've decided to follow Jesus and pursue him with all that you have and believe in his death and his resurrection, he will firmly root yourself, or he will firmly root you in his victory, in the victory that he has over sin and death. And there is absolutely nothing in this world that will pull you apart from that victory. You have been declared an heir. You are his royal priest, his holy possession, and he clothes you with white, white robes of glory. And he will exalt you. And he will give you joy. So family, as Jesus left aside all his riches and was born a child in a cattle stall, in all his humility, he has come to earth to taste our sadness. He was born to set us free from our fears and our sins. And it's his wounds that have healed us. We can now find our rest in him. And as we long to see him again when he returns, he will continue to be our joy. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you now, knowing that you are not distant, but you are near. Lord Jesus, you've experienced the worst of all sufferings, and therefore you can't sympathize in all our weaknesses and affliction. So Lord, we bring to you now all our weaknesses and affliction. We bring to you our suffering. Lord, we bring to you our grief, our loss. We bring those things to you because we know that you are our refuge, that you are a God who cares, that you are a God who comforts us. So Lord, as we bring these things to you now, we boldly ask that you'll give us your comfort this morning, even now in this moment through your spirit. And Father, as you comfort us in every affliction, May you turn our mourning into joy, we pray.